This is Parrot Talk. Brought to you by Restoring the Faith Media. RestoringTheFaith.com Good morning, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. This is Mike Parrot, and I am the humble host of Parrot Talk here on the Crusade Channel. This is Live Talk Radio the way it should be. Today is the 21st day of the 12th month of the year of our Lord, 2023. And I am back in the studio, broadcasting from the heart of America once again. Always on air, always online, always happy to be with you. I just want to tell you about the airplane last night. Can I just tell you about the airplane last night before we even do anything else, which we got a lot to get through today, but I just... What is it with Middle Eastern women getting their way on the airport, on on, on the airplanes? These Middle Eastern Karens... I don't get it. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't understand it. I don't claim to understand it. Okay, here's what I'm talking about. So I've got my whole crew, okay? And we had some medical reasons for going down south. And thankfully those are resolved. And so we're able to come home. Great. Wonderful. Lovely. I bring my whole little crew on the airplane. I've got a 14-year-old, and a 12-year-old, and a 9-year-old, and a 7-year-old, and a 4-year-old, and a 2-year-old, and a very, very pregnant wife. Okay? Southwest Airlines. We are the family boarding group. So we board after the A's. All the A's get on. Maybe you pay to be an A. Maybe you're a frequent flyer, and you've earned A status. A tier. Team A. A team. And then, right before they let the B team on, they let the families on. Which is a nice accommodation, so that you can actually sit with your little babies and entertain them. I would really hate for my two-year-old or four-year-old to uh, just be sitting next to strangers, tormenting them for the entire flight back. Uh, I don't know that that would be a good thing (laughs) for anybody on the plane. Uh, let alone for my little two-year-old or for my little four-year-old. So I kept the two and the four in my row. And then the 14, 12, 9 had their own row. And then mom and seven had a row with a seat in between. Okay? So I for those who are counting, I, I don't know how... That's eight souls spread into nine seats, all clustered together. Well, you know how Southwest is... If you get on first, then you kind of like make eye contact with people and you're trying to look for like who's going to sit with you if you have open seats and stuff and you're trying to deter people from sitting with you, which actually when you have a huge family, uh, it's not hard to deter people from wanting to sit anywhere near you to be, to, to be honest. By the way, just as a quick side note, thanks be to God, the whole crew did perfectly fine. On the plane, not one peep from anybody. No meltdowns, no crying, no I want this, no anything. My little two-year-old baby girl slept right in my arms for the vast majority of it. That was by design, of course. Kept her awake all day waiting for the flight. Kept her up. I was like the energizer. I was like Johnny on the spot. Keep her awake. Got to keep her awake until we get on the plane. She is fed She is well-maintained. She is well-exercised. She is ready to go. She has a full tummy. 
and things fell into place. Things fell into place. Okay, so you get on, and I just, I just don't understand how there's this exception to to all the plane rules for Middle Eastern people. So there's this Middle Eastern Karen. And she has a lap child, okay? This is a child who's less than two years old. And the, and the less than two-year-old lap child who's riding with Karen mom, or, or Karen Habib mom, uh, what shall we name her? Let's name her uh, uh, Fatima. So Fatima gets on the plane, and she has her little, her little lap baby, and she decides that she needs a whole row to herself. Now, this is a pretty full flight. So she, so she positions her little baby bag on the aisle seat. And then just puts some, like, baby wipes and some food and stuff in the center seat. And then she sits in the window seat holding her baby. Meanwhile, there are human beings walking up and and down the plane looking for an open seat, looking for a place to sit. This is Southwest Airlines. It's mostly full. There's going to be a few open seats on the entire airplane. Little did I know that behind me was uh, was Fatima's mother, who also was pulling the same stunt, trying to trying to defend an entire row. And then beside b- besides her was nobody, and behind her was, uh, let's call him Muhammad. So Muhammad is two rows behind me, and he's a bigger guy, and he's trying to defend an entire row, okay? So four human beings for nine seats, versus I've just told you we put eight humans into nine seats, and we think we're doing pretty good. And look, if somebody wants to jump in, next to pregnant mama and the seven-year-old in the middle of all of this, happy to, happy to. In fact, there was one nicer-looking older lady who just seemed like she had a nice soul, gentle soul, who was wandering the plane looking for a seat. And she even asked this uh, uh, Middle Eastern Karen, she's like, hey, Middle Eastern Karen lady, Fatima, uh, can I sit here? And she then she pretended not to know English. So she wouldn't even reply. I heard them speaking English to each other subsequently on the flight, okay? So these people managed to get away with murder. They, they, sh- they push people into like center seats and really uncomfortable, breaking up parties and, it's, and, and, uh, and all this. And nobody says a thing. Nobody does anything about it. Nobody says anything about it. You just get the Middle Eastern pass. Okay, then it's time to take off. And what happens when it's time to take off? You put your bloody seatbelt on, right? And you put your you put your baby bag in the in front of the seat in front of you, right? You, have you ever had the, uh, the, uh, the the actual plane Karens come by and they're like, uh, "Excuse me, sir, you saw your, your your seat is one degree declined, and so we can't take off until you fix your seat." I mean, they're like Nazis about it, right? And then, oh, your your backpack is sticking out just a little bit too much. You need to shove it in underneath the seat in front of you. You just need to shove that thing. Okay, thank you very much. So, no um, discrepancies with with the white people or with the Latin American people or with anybody else. 
But this woman, remember how I told you she kept her like baby bag and her baby diapers and all of and her food, like her styrofoam just strewn out on two separate seats. No words are said. We take off with her stuff that way. Nobody says anything to her. Then we're actually taking off. We're, we're, we're inclining across the sky. We've been flying now, technically flying, for about 47 seconds. Then Muhammad gets up and starts walking around. And he's like, oh, I'll take the, the little girl. And then uh, it, three adults, three on one, man-to-man coverage on this lap child. This lap child who gets her own iPad, who gets, uh, who gets passed around between grandma there's an aunt involved, too. So there's an aunt, there's a grandma, there's a mom, there's a dad. She gets walked back to the back of the plane. They have to go onto the intercom, and they're like, Hello, the seatbelt sign is still on. If everybody could please sit down. Very passive-aggressive. Doesn't work. Passive-aggressive doesn't work with Middle Eastern people. You really you have to thumb them in the chest and say, Hey, sit down. You need to sit down, sir. Uh, but of course, nobody's gonna do that because Allah Akbar, I kill you, I kill you, silence, I kill you. So, uh, so uh, we've got Muhammad walking around the plane when he's not supposed to be walking around. Nobody's wearing seatbelts. The lap child is not strapped in at all. She's bratty McBrat screaming at the top of her lungs, screaming to the point where people are looking at me like they think it's one of my crew. I'm like, no, my crew is doing just fine. I don't want anybody to think that my crew are emitting these hell noises, okay, because my crew is perfectly fine. In fact, look, this one's asleep. That one over there, he's good to go. We are solid. Meanwhile, Allah is walking around the plane. Nobody says anything besides the passive-aggressive bang. As a general reminder, uh, the seatbelt line is still fastened. If you could, uh, everybody could please take and remain seated, that would be, uh, that'd be great. Thank you very much. Bing. I don't understand it, ladies and gentlemen. I'll never understand it. The, the privilege of these people the privilege that they get. What are we so afraid of? Are we are we still afraid that we're going to be called what? Racist or something? When we try to actually just hold people accountable to the rules. And I'm not a big rule rule person. I'm not a big rule follower. I don't really I'm not like Mr. Rules. I don't I don't uh, revel in red tape. It's not my nature. I tend to flout rules sometimes. Those who know me know me uh, know that that's kind of true. I'm like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Well, uh, the speeding rules are for other people. I know how to drive rapidly. I know how to get from point A to point B. In fact, when I'm driving, I am intent on getting from point A to point B. That's the whole reason I'm driving. I, I look around at those people who are on the road, and I'm like. Do these people even have anywhere to go? Is this like joyriding? Are these people sightseeing? Can we please step on it, ladies and gentlemen? Can we get from A to B? Little, I, I, little bit of cleric on on that front. Sorry, I, I, I apologize for that. But the deeper, uh, the deeper thing that's going on here is, 
I'm not advocating for all of the crazy FDA safety rules and whatever else. I don't think it's necessary that your backpack be totally shoved underneath the seat in front of you, uh, or else it's going to magically just start orbiting the plane, flying around and hitting people in the face. Okay. I, I don't, I don't really, I have no idea why your tray table has to be up to take off. I think it's kind of dumb. Um, all right. I do. But my point is, is that if there is going to be a rule or a law or a regulation, if there is going to be a, uh, uh, a norm which is enforced, then it should be universally enforced. That's, that's kind of like the whole point of what makes a law a law. A law is a law because it is predictable, it is consistent, it is uh, applies to everybody, it is knowable, it is, it's known, it's all of those things. That's how we know that a law is a law. That's how we know what the, what the standards of conduct are. That's how we know what right and wrong is, or at least with regards to uh, cultural norms and and uh, and and regulations and and whatever else. What is the deal with difficult personalities continually walking away with exceptions to the norms? You see this with black women. You see this with Middle Easterns. You see this sometimes even with like Chinese and Indians who pretend not to speak English and they're really just trying to get their own, I don't know, seat upgrade or they're trying to get their own row or they're trying to get their own whatever. We don't have a culture that is built on negotiating. We're not like a negotiating culture. We don't, you know, Donald Trump wrote the book, The Art of the Deal, we don't really, we don't negotiate things. When you go to the grocery store, you don't try to pay less than what the advertised price is. You just pay it. When you go to a market, you don't, we, we are not good at negotiating, we Americans. This is something I saw down in Latin America, by the way. They're, uh, they're, they're some of the people around the world. In fact, a lot of people around the world are raised in negotiations, at all times, you know, like all of life is up for negotiation and um, and bargaining and throwing out pricing and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I was offered a, a little five pack of, uh, of uh, Cuban cigars. And at first the guy offered them to me in units uh, in, the, in the local unit. And the local unit, and he offered it to me for like, you know, 1,500 of the local units, okay? By the time, I just kept walking and I was like, no, no, thank you, no, thank you, no, thank you, not interested. Even though I kind of was. Uh, definitely kind of was, but I just wasn't sure what I was going to get him down to. And eventually he ended up selling it to me for like 400 of the local units. So he went from 1,500 down to 400 of the local units, over the, over the time span of like 37 seconds, okay? Now, I don't know if he was giving me an American price up front and then he just realized that, oh, like this guy speaks Spanish and he's not really that interested or I don't know what, I don't know what all happened to, uh, to get down to that price and I probably even still overpaid 
I probably could have paid even less. But we don't have a, a, an experience like that very often in the United States of America. We don't generally go out and renegotiate things and give 17 prices for things. Like, even look at uh, how we buy houses. The biggest expenditure of our life, right, to buy a house. We, we make an offer, and then sometimes the seller just accepts it. And then that's it. And then you go into escrow, and then you inspect the house, and you do all the things, and then that, the price doesn't change much. You might later on, after you inspect it, you're like, oh, hey, by the way, can you fix these things? So it's a couple thousand in repairs or whatever. Um, but you're not making a 10%. You're not making a 40% change in your offer price 37 seconds later. Okay, that's, that, that just doesn't happen. Um, a lot of the country does like to negotiate and renegotiate. In fact, something that's very frustrating while uh, working with uh, different cultures uh, in some of the industries that I've worked in, for example, the Chinese like to renegotiate after the deal is already done. After, like, it's, it's, you're, you're no longer, it's no longer time to renegotiate. And then they want to renegotiate again and again and again and again. So some of it is uh, is very uncouth. Some of it uh, f- flies in the face of, I don't know what you would call acceptable norms, um, and it can be it can be very annoying. Uh, but I think that there is a value in um, a culture of people who grow up and are exposed to sub level of negotiating. Um, I think I think that that is a, actually a net good thing, and it's interesting that we don't really do that here. We we just don't. Um, imagine, uh, think of all the other things that you buy that you do. Okay, um, you may have somebody who comes to like let's say mow your lawn. How heavily negotiated was that price? Did they did the guy just give you the price for your house and you just say okay and you pay it every two weeks? I mean, that's generally what happens in the United States. Um, did you go back and forth 17 times? Um, no, probably not. Because he may have, if you had done that, he wouldn't mow your lawn. And then you'd be looking for someone else. And most people don't have the patience or the stamina to deal with something like that. Some people do. Some Americans do. And I can tell you that I have been in situations where... Um, I have been astounded at the stamina that some American customers have ha- have displayed uh, with respect to how heavily they're going to negotiate the pricing on the stuff that I sell or the or the services that I provide. And um, and I, I didn't take offense to it. I, I don't take offense to it. Um, having seen this around the world in the Middle East and in the Far East and in Latin America and pretty much everywhere else outside of the United States and like Great Britain. Um, I, I have no problem with it. I, I actually kind of enjoy it. I enjoy uh, the sport of it. But I think a lot of people are very uneasy about it. They don't enjoy it very much. They don't enjoy negotiating at all, they don't. They just don't get any pleasure out of it. Um, it. It tends to make them feel uneasy, makes them feel sick, makes them feel. Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure what. 
And so, um, you know, I, it's, uh, I, I feel badly for those people. I do. So that's one of the, I told you I would be bringing a little bit of just cultural uh, differences and insights from, uh, from RTF South. You know, I wasn't down there very long because I had to go back to work. Um, as I maybe alluded to, we had a family medical issue and had to bring everybody down there for an extended period of time. So we were living with the locals, like a local, um, as cheaply as possible, living, breathing, and thinking in terms of the local currency, living, breathing, thinking in terms of the local language, the local cuisine, the local everything. Um, we walked everywhere. We didn't have a car. Um, so whatever uh, we, we, would, we could take taxis. Um, the first time I took a taxi for all of us, I wanted to go to this, I guess, semi-famous, regionally famous restaurant when we first got there to celebrate that we all got there. And the, the cab driver charged us 20 American dollars uh, to go basically four minutes down the road. By the time we left, we could get rides like that down to like two bucks because um, we were getting the local rate on everything, not the American rate. Um, but yeah, I, I, uh, I, I wanted to share some of that with you. Just the, I, what, what, what is the point of this segment? What do you, what do you even call this segment? You call this segment the, um, I don't know, the Puritan appreciation segment. Um, the United States was the dumping grounds for all of the Puritans and, and other miscreants that the British Empire didn't want anymore, so they just dumped them all over here, and that's how we got our start. We started off as a Puritan empire, and uh, we still have very puritanical instincts. We, we don't negotiate. Um, you know, we, for a long period of our history, we banned booze. Um, we've, we've, uh, we've banned dancing. Um, we, we're, we're not a very warm people. We're just not. We're a cold people. Still are a cold people. Americans are. Uh, when you get on the air, when you get on an elevator with an American, um, there's no human to human interaction. There's no eye contact. There's no, hello, how are you? There's no, uh, discussing anything. The other American is just going to go into his or her phone um, and maybe hold her his or her breath, you know, because they're like worried that there might be diseases with all these local greasy, gross people inside of a confined space. You might be counting down the floors until you can bail out. You may turn your back towards the people in the in the elevator. You know, around the world, that's just not the always the norm around the world. When you get on an elevator with people, you get off as friends, and um, and that's just true. You know, we used to <laughs> we used to practice our elevator pitch uh, on on uh, when you were trying to break into Wall Street and you were trying to get hired by any of the firms. You needed an elevator pitch, You're like oh, you get on an elevator and you have thirty seconds to impress the person who's on the elevator, some managing director or some other investment bank or some other whatever. And so you go, you go and you give your pitch. Um, we don't have elevator pitches anymore. We don't do that anymore because we don't have human-to-human -human interaction. It's something to be dreaded. It's something to be avoided and despised. Um, that's just sort of how we are now. That's just how we are as Americans. 
And um, I, we're not the only ones. I'm not saying that we're the only ones. Um, a lot of the world is cold, um, especially like Northern Europe. The Northern Europeans are cold. If the Germans get on the uh, elevator or the Dutch, um, they're not necessarily going to walk off your friends. But if a Spaniard gets on, if an Aussie gets on, uh, Greek, Italian, um, anyone from Eastern Europe, anyone from uh, a, lot, a lot of the Middle Eastern countries, anyone from Latin America, if they, if they get on an elevator, it's hola, how are you, buenos dias, what floor are you getting off on, where are you from, how are you doing, how long are you here, I mean, it's like 37 questions. And um, I think that there is a right way to do things, and uh, generally, but some, some things are just cultural. But there definitely is a right way to do things when it comes to the common good. And having some idea of the common good and your fellow uh, brothers and sisters in Christ and your neighbors, and your um, the, the, the people directly around you, I think that that is um, exceedingly important. And it's, it's hard for us to, to do if we just refuse to even talk to each other. So I think social media has exacerbated this problem, has made it very, very bad, very worse. Um, I, I think people refuse to speak to each other. They don't know how to make eye contact or shake people's hands or just make small talk. People have lost empathy. They have no empathy for what other people are going through anymore whatsoever, only living in the digital realities that they sort of construct for themselves. And as a result of that, I mean, this is why we have serial killers. This is why we have uh, so much uh, crazy mass casualty, mass shooting, gun violence in our country because people no longer view other human beings as human. There's not, a, there's not an empathy. There's not a compassion. We don't know how to compassionate each other. Um, and there's not real connections. There are only uh, electronic versions of interactions with people. Um, digital interactions with human beings, not real interactions with human beings. And those digital inputs are um, can be um, easily manipulated. And you can start to uh, you can start to reduce humans to just mere ideas in your mind. They're just ideas in your mind. They're not actual real beings that exist outside of you. Um, and when they're just ideas in your minds, when they're just trolls on the internet, when they're just handles on Twitter, um, they don't need to be treated like people and people who have, who, who, who interact in this way, I think for extended periods of time, um, can, are, can become susceptible to this error of forgetting that human beings are human beings, um, and should be treated in a certain way. So, all right, there's there's the segment. You got the segment. We started with the airplane. <laughs> I took you into an elevator. Uh, we talked about negotiating on the streets, and uh, and the Puritan Empire. 
Uh, we'll get to a little bit of news in the second segment here. This is Parrot Talk here on the Crusade Channel. Live Talk Radio, the way it should be. Always on air, always on, always online. And yes, always happy to be with you. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. Mike Parrott here. I'm the humble host of Parrot Talk here on the Crusade Channel. This is Live Talk Radio, the way it should be. We are always on air, always online, always happy to be with you, and I am broadcasting today. Finally, so good to be back home, although I've been home quite a bit uh, over this last month, in the RTF studio from the heart of America, where you can email me at restoringthefaithmedia at gmail.com. I have brought to you some pretty unpopular stuff, especially earlier this week. I'm the guy who tells you, just don't even vote. And I know that that's not I know that's I know that that doesn't really fit in with the with I don't know the way that we were all raised. I know the way I was raised. Voting was important. It was it was exceedingly important to do. You always got the sticker that said I voted. I I have grown up paying particular attention to the American political landscape. I mean, acutely attentive to. Uh, the things that are happening in our world, especially our political world. Uh, the presidential election was like the Super Bowl in my household, uh, or maybe like the World Cup since it comes around every four years. The presidential debates were something that we uh, rearranged our entire day around, didn't miss any of it, probably watched it once and a half or twice, uh, had, to, had to watch all the reactions afterwards, flip over to Fox News, and then see what the enemy was saying over on CNN. Um, that's, I, I, I was, I, I, one of the earliest voices that I remember hearing vividly is the voice of Rush Limbaugh in my life, in my car, as I was driven around as a young man uh, from, from A to B and B to C. And so paying particular attention uh, to the campaigns and uh, meeting my congressman and uh, and being civically involved were always important things in my household, in my world uh, growing up. So for me to sit here now uh, in 2023, on the cusp of 2024, just a few days really, till the end of the year, and to tell you that I have no intention of voting in this upcoming presidential election, I have no intention of of it. I will I will uh, I will note the the selection well. Um, I don't know if I should call it an election or a selection. Um, I'll keep track of the polls. I'll report them for you. I think it's all very very terribly interesting. Um, I can't I can't draw my gaze away from it really. Um, but I just don't think that my participation in the federal election is going to change it one way or the other. Um, and I think the, the more likely thing is it's going to change something in me, change something in my soul uh, if I participate in, in the Freemasonic sacrament. And so um, I think it's better that I just become an outside neutral observer. Because, look, here's the truth. The truth is, is that there's not a political solution to all of the various amalgamation of problems that face our land. 
from border to border, from coast to coast, from sea to shining sea, the number of problems that are plaguing us are so uh, varied in terms of their complexity, but also uh, varied in terms of their seriousness. We have very, very serious problems in this country. And an election will not solve most of those serious problems. It will not change it one iota. And so once I realize this, look, I'm... Some of you know that I am I am in a pitched battle at all times between my choleric nature, which I think is 55 to 60% in charge, and my sanguine nature, which probably constitutes the rest of it. Although every now and then you'll have like some melancholic storm from me where I'm reading to you poetry and I'm just uh, very introspective and and um, and and whatnot but those are the two sort of driving instincts uh, that are uh, that are that may, that constitute my my makeup it is difficult for both for a cleric person or even a cleric sanguine person to sort of rely on divine providence to give up the wheel to say, you know what, Jesus, take the wheel, as as our as our heretic Protestant uh, brothers like to say. <laughs> yes, you're heretics. I can I I. This is my show. I call you heretic if I want to. Um, I say it in jest, though. I say it in. Uh, I say it the same way when we were when we were children. I'm gonna. I'm about to say a bad word here. Okay, so hide the children. When we were children, when we could call each other faggots. And it was a term of endearment. Okay, that's how I—that's how I am calling you a heretic, you you non-Catholic Protestant. You're protesting the real church, you heretic. Get on board, you heretic. Anyway, um, the way that my heretic friends like to like to talk, they're like, "Oh, Jesus, take the wheel," and that's hard. Trusting in divine providence is ex- it's exceedingly difficult for both clerics and for sanguines. It is a lot easier for the other two temperaments, for the, uh, for the melancholics, especially, I think, for the melancholics, um, uh, but may- maybe most especially for the phlegmatics. The phlegmatics have this this instinct to basically don't do anything. And so the idea of like, oh, uh, God's going to take care of everything. They love that. They're like, oh, okay, I don't have to do anything. God's going to do everything. Um, so that's the, <laughs> that's the phlegmatic way. That's not the cleric way. The cleric way is I'm going to build the ark with my bare hands myself if I need to. I don't need anybody's help. And I'm just gonna do it. It's a bias for action. It is. Uh, it, it inactivity is um, almost a sin. To do to 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 sit and do nothing, to sit and contemplate, is very difficult for the cleric and the sanguine. Um, so for me to tell you that 
our nation needs prayer more than it needs votes. That our nation needs sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices, and that it needs saints more than it needs campaigns and candidates and platforms, slogans, platitudes, bumper stickers, uh, picket signs. For me to tell you that is a level of, I don't know, um, I'm not trying to toot my own horn here, but it, it, it has required a level of thought and maturity and, um, and love for the nation, patriotism, love for the nation, that I was not able to muster in my 20s and 30s. For me to sit here as the, I can do it myself, I can pull myself up under my own bootstraps, I, I, I paid my way through college, I had the Marine Corps help, um, you know, I, when I left when I was 18 and I never came back, not even for one day, um, and I paid my way through graduate school and I've done all, you know, for me to sit here and tell you the type of guy that I am, the type A plus personality, that we need prayer and sacrifice more than we need voting to heal our nation, that we need divine intervention, that we need families, we need saints. We need strong parishes, we need strong communities and neighborhoods, and that's way more important than voting for some narcissist for president. That, ladies and gentlemen, has taken me a long time to internalize, to believe, to process, and to be able to articulate. It's taken me a long time to get to the point of being able to sit behind this microphone and tell you what I really think. I've been bouncing this idea around since 2013. Ten years it has taken me since I started on this journey of traditional um, political discourse. Traditionalism in terms of uh, monarchism, fascism, um, well-ordered society, um, starting to think about the real evils of our time, such as single motherhood, which is state-sponsored, such as usury, which is state-sponsored, such as sodomy and abortion, which are not going away. They're just not going away. Uh, the groomerism, not going away. You could elect Vivek Ramaswamy, the magical Veggie Tales vegan, the, the, the skinny guy with a funny last name. You could elect Vivek, and he could promise you that he's going to dismantle the FBI and, and the Department of State, and he's going to do all of these things, and you would still have the revolutionary spirit advance in this country. The revolutionary spirit would make, would gain ground even under Vivek Ramaswamy if he were president of the United States. Transgenderism would advance. Destruction of children's bodies would advance. The march towards open pederasty will advance. 
Pedos in the open would advance. The surveillance state, the bioterrorist state would advance. The New World Order would advance. Wealth would continue to be consolidated into the hands of the few. The global power structure would gain ground. There would be war. There would be uh, an expansion of government. There would be still deficit spending. The fake American dollar would continue to be propped up. The Federal Reserve would still enslave all of you. The Netflix and chill generation would still be there. Drug abuse, violent crimes, criminality. All of those things would continue on and on and on and on and on. Even under the most conservative of the candidates that we have available to us. The revolution will advance. So the question is, what will stop the revolution? What will halt the revolution? The thing that will halt the revolution will not be an electoral win. It won't. You could elect Ronald Reagan, and he would still grow the, grow the government the way Reagan did, and deficit spend the way Reagan did, and charge the credit cards to our children and our children's children and our children's children's children the way Reagan did. And grant amnesty the way Reagan did to millions and millions of illegal aliens. The revolution will not be stopped by even the second coming of Reagan. Nor will it stop under Vivek Ramaswamy, nor will it stop under Donald J. Trump. So what will stop the revolution? The revolution will be halted by a reactionary, a reactionary movement, a counter-revolutionary movement, by crusaders, by you, living your life the way you live your life, raising children the way you raise children, building strong communities, strong uh, strong parishes, strong neighborhoods, uh, and re-establishing Christian customs. I think that the revolution will be halted more handily by the fountain pen and by the uh, well-dressed man uh, who can wield the fountain pen in a marvelous way, the way uh, G.K. Chesterton wielded the fountain pen. I think that will do more damage to the revolution than any campaigning or platforming or sloganeering. I think that reading of good books, despising of, per- of uh, technology, I think that living a truly counter-cultural life In the open, I think martyrdom, I think real, actual martyrdom is what will stop the revolution. And we're not far away from it, ladies and gentlemen, and we need to prepare for it. Coming soon to a uh, collapsing empire 
near you. All right, that's the show. Thank you so much for listening. This is Parrot Talk here on the Crusade Channel. This is Live Talk Radio the way it should be. Always on air, always online, always happy to be here. Glad to be back in the studio. And tomorrow, we go around the world. So many things to get to on Around the World Friday. I look forward to it. I'll see you then. God bless you. Thank you for listening. This is Parrot Talk. Brought to you by Restoring the Faith Media. Restoringthefaith.com